This is the man in black here. A shadow lord. He's alive. Alive! Hello and welcome to the 5th annual Retroist Halloween special. Halloween has always been a very special holiday to me. It is one of my favorite times of year, so I'm very happy to be joined by 7 contributors this Halloween who are going to share their memories of Halloween past. So be prepared to laugh, to cry, and maybe, just maybe, you'll get a little scared. We got a lot of memories to cover, so without further ado, let's start the show. first story comes from Retroist contributor and Canadian Charlton Hero, who has one to grow on about the importance of having a great Halloween costume as a kid. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in a small town called Clarenville in Atlantic Canada on an island called Newfoundland. Halloween, in my eyes anyway, was just as exciting as Christmas. It meant dressing up, getting tons of candy, and getting to stay out late with your friends. How cool was that? Halloween was an event in my hometown, and costumes were always part of the fun. My earliest memory was a Halloween costume, where I think it was a decision of economics rather than cool factor. I was the Fonz, so I think my parents broke out my old leather jacket, combed my hair to the side, and I became instantly the Fonz. I will never forget, however, the worst costume that I ever made. It was literally a last-minute costume, and boy, was this a bad decision. How bad was this costume? Well, let me set the stage for you. It was a Halloween dance for Boy Scouts, and not being exactly the most popular with the fairer sex, I was determined not to go. However, somehow I ended up with a date that evening. And boy, was I not prepared. I didn't have a costume. But on some ill-given advice, I was told, Hey, why don't you paint your face or something? Sounded like solid reasoning to me at the time. I was going to be a pirate. The only problem was, I had none of the props to make a costume so I had to improvise on all levels. So, I grabbed myself some black eyeliner and attempted to draw it on myself. Now guys, I'm not sure if you've ever had to draw something on your face in a mirror, but the difficulty is absolutely crazy. I attempted to draw an eye patch on myself, which in a moment of pure stupidity, I didn't realize that to make an eye patch out of makeup, you would have to keep one eye closed all night to maintain the patch. Otherwise, the patch more or less resembled a black eye with straps on it. The beard, however, I will give myself credit, was pretty darn cool, so it wasn't all a wash. Next problem, I didn't have a pirate shirt 
a hook, or even a sword. This just wasn't working, but you know what? I was determined to make this thing work. I grabbed my trusty blue tank top that I got on a trip to Florida. It was an awesome V the TV series lizard shirt. So I turned that baby inside out. Boom! Instant pirate shirt. I completed my pirate abomination by tying a bandana on my head. I was certain I was the worst makeshift pirate in the history of Halloween. As predicted, the costume was a dud. I looked ridiculous and ended up ending my humiliation with the timely call home to Dad only three dances in, citing a bad stomach. Right before the slow dance to the golden tones of Ariel Speedwagons, I can't fight this feeling anymore. I can't wear this costume anymore was more like it. Thanks, Charlton Hero. Our next story comes from Justin. You might know him on the site as Retro Justin. He's the resident Coleco Adam junkie, and he has a story about his encounter with a visitor from the skies. Being a teenager during summer break can be fun, but it is not a fun story. This is the story of how I survived an alien invasion. In late summer of 1994, my dad, my friend Louie, and I were in a sci-fi mood. We spent the day watching episode after episode of X-Files, which we recorded on VHS. We also watched a UFO documentary called In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. The day ended with the movie War of the Worlds. Toward the end of that movie, my mother asked us to run an errand for her. On the way back from the errand, at around 9.30 at night, my father started swerving the car. You know, driving very erratic. There was nothing on the road, so I had no idea why he was driving like that. He turned down the side road and slammed the brakes. I asked him what was wrong. He points out my window and yells, LOOK! I turned my head and saw a huge UFO in the distance. It was hovering in place. The thing was totally illuminated. Like the moon, except this thing was oval in shape. I just about lost my mind and thought the mothership arrived to take us all away. My first instinct was to reach for the door handle and run. But my dad, he hit the power locks. The next words out of my dad's mouth were, We're going after it. <laughs> I was already frightened, but now I was scared beyond words. He then speeds down the road and starts driving in the direction of the UFO. My friend Louie, who was in the back seat, tried to say something, but my dad turned his head, glared at him with crazy eyes, and told him to shut up. After a few minutes of, you know, trying to track it down, we lose sight of this thing, and uh, my dad decides, you know, to go home. So, you know, on the way home, we say, you know what, well, we gotta tell mom, we gotta call the newspapers, we gotta call the president, we gotta tell everyone that the mothership is here, and we gotta, you know, fight. So, right about the time, I started calming down from the excitement. Then my dad said, hey, you know what, we're going back. And he pretty much made a U-turn on the highway. So, of course, I'm starting to sweat again. I, I, I wish I could describe this feeling of seeing this thing. Because it's like both excitement and fear at the same time. I, you know, you're excited, you can't believe this is happening, but... You're also getting out of your mind. A few minutes go by, we, we catch a glimpse of it. We get closer and closer and closer. Fifteen minutes later, we are practically underneath it. We're now in like flushing Queens. By the way, that's where the whole story takes place in Queens, New York. So I'm like, yeah, he, he has this bright idea. He says, uh, 
why don't we all get out and look up at it? Now, I don't know about you, but we just spent the entire day watching, you know, movies and, and shows about aliens and UFOs. And this is how every alien abduction happens or begins. So with that, we get out of the car, we look up, and we see the words Fujifilm written on the side of the thing. Yes, we spend the past hour chasing a blimp. We've never seen one blimp at night before. We've seen blimps all the time, never at night. Thanks, Justin. Next up is Doug, and Doug is here to share his favorite Halloween grade school memories. School was always a big part of the Halloween season. We always commemorated Halloween in school in some way or another. We always celebrated Halloween in school in some way or another. Sometimes these were just small ways. We would sing Halloween songs in uh, choir class. I remember singing, Have You Heard the Ghost of John in a grade school choir, which was always fun. Sometimes we celebrated it, commemorated it in bigger ways. One of the biggest I can remember is also one of the first, a Halloween party which we had during grade school. Not exactly sure when this was, but it was before we moved to the west side of Columbus, so it must have been third grade or fourth grade. Lots of great things happened at this party. First of all, we were all invited to wear our costumes, which I did. I can't remember what I was, but I would wager a bet that I was dressed in some Ben Cooper costume. During this party, we had punch that had been um, spiked with dry ice. I'm not sure if that's the proper terminology or not, but dry ice was put into the punch, which was also in kind of like a witch's cauldron. And so steam or smoke was coming off of it. This was the first time I had ever seen that special effect before. And I think about it any time today that, that this is done again, any time you go to a kid's party, an adult party where they have uh, concocted a beverage like this, put dry ice into the Kool-Aid or whatever, and steam is coming off of it, I always remember the first time I saw this, which was at this grade school party. One of the uh, teacher's assistants was dressed up for the party as a witch. In fact, she may have been the one that was stirring this cauldron of spiked Kool-Aid, smoking Kool-Aid, and I had never seen her before. I, I don't know if she was a teacher's assistant or she was the parent of a student, but this was the first time I'd seen her, so I, I didn't really know what she looked like in real life. She was just appearing now before us as a witch, and so I, in typical Doug fashion, repeated a line I had heard on TV. I looked at her and said, I wouldn't want to meet you in a dark alley. Now, to me, that was a perfectly innocent line. It was just something I had heard somewhere. My classmates, though, who always seemed a little more savvy than me. I was always the naive one. They were a little more worldly-wise. They saw something improper about that comment. We'll just leave it at that, and began to uh, tease me uh, about it, suggesting that I was uh, coming on to the witch, was was not the case at all. I was expressing my fear of the uh, witch. The biggest thing of this biggest party, though, that I recall is that we actually had a haunted house uh, when the party was over. First, we celebrated the party in our classroom. And then when that was done, when we had our uh, smoky Kool-Aid and our snacks and all of the other fun things, we went to the gymnasium where a haunted house had been set up. And the kids from the middle school had come over and set up this uh, haunted house. And they were going to take us through two or three at a time. Now, I was a big monster guy back then. I was the guy who read all the Crestwood House monster books. I was the guy who uh, loved Scooby-Doo because of the monsters on it. I was talking about monsters all the time. I was the monster guy. And when it came my turn to go through the haunted house, I did something that 
I have regretted ever since, I chickened out. I refused to go. Everybody else went through the doors and into whatever terrifying wonders were behind there. I I never knew. I I heard stories later, but I never knew because I didn't go. Uh, There was one middle school girl who was begging me to go, offered to go with me, offered to hold my hand as I went through the haunted house. What could be better? A cute middle school girl holding your hand. I refused adamantly. I could not be budged. I would not go through the haunted house. Eventually, the teacher gave up on me and uh, sent me back to the classroom, and I just had to listen to tales from my classmates for the rest of the day. Oddly enough, my classmates never made fun of me for that one. You would have thought I, I would have really gotten teased for that. If I got teased about the, the comment I made to the witch, certainly I should have got teased for not going through the uh, haunted house. I never did get teased for it, though, so there's no regrets there, but there is a regret that I, for whatever reason, and I still don't know what it was today, I don't know what caused me to dig in my heels and not go through this haunted house, but I still have a regret that, for whatever reason, I did not do it today. And I'm always hoping I'm always hoping that there will be some other school somewhere in the neighborhood who will do a party like that for our grade school kids here, who will set up a haunted house like that for our grade school kids here so that I can go through it finally, so that I can redeem this uh, terrible regret from my childhood. I am certain that I would go through that haunted house today if I had the chance. Well, I'm almost certain. Thanks, Doug. Prepare to travel back in time as David Grealish shares his memories of Halloween in 1974 and the horrible consequences of experimenting with soccer. My story is about the Halloween of 1974. Halloween was always one of my favorite holidays as a kid. I say one of my favorites because it faced a difficult challenge competing with Christmas, a holiday where you're out of school for two weeks and you receive a bunch of gifts. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and though the fall season wasn't a major departure from weather as usual, it was a welcome change from the often oppressive summer heat. Halloween still had a very innocent quality about it in the early 70s. It was still almost entirely a children's holiday, themed with spooky fun and not violence or gruesome gore. I loved it when the decorations started going up both around my neighborhood, in my classroom, and around the school. It was all orange, black and white, with haunted houses, ghosts, skeletons, witches, and black cats. You got a little of the classic Universal Studios monsters as decorations, too. When you're a kid, Halloween was and still is the beginning of the happiest holiday season. During the two weeks or so leading up to Halloween, there were a number of other things to look forward to in elementary school as well. First, the school would have a day for students to come dressed in a costume, and then we all got a chance to walk across the stage as a class and show off. There would also be a special time on that day where we could trick-or-treat to the other classes in our grade. The most anticipated activity, though, was the school's carnival, which was held on a Saturday afternoon and was always a lot of fun. I don't know how well the amusement booths would hold up to a modern kid's scrutiny, but I remember myself and all of my friends really enjoying the whole thing. The parents and teachers made them mostly out of plywood and cardboard, and I think only the haunted house walkthrough was inside a classroom or something. You left with tons of little toys, some candy, and maybe even a cake if you tried your luck a couple of times at the cakewalk. I had a best friend named Mark, who lived next door to me during my entire time in elementary school. We walked to school together, played, and spent most of our time together for five straight years. Neither of us were very much into sports, but somehow we got interested in soccer about two weeks before that Halloween. It was on the weekend, we were in his backyard, and it was our first attempt at trying to play. I believe another friend was telling us what to do, and I don't think he was giving us the correct information. 
What happened was, to start, we placed the ball between us, and we both went to kick it at the same time. He actually kicked the ball, and my foot then kicked him firmly in the shin, fracturing his leg. It was horrible, and I felt terrible. His mother came running, and they took him to the emergency room. For how terrible this all was, I don't even remember what I did while he was gone. I'm sure I just went home. But I do remember how happy and relieved I was when he came home. He now sported a full leg cast and seemed to be feeling just fine otherwise. Thankfully, he wasn't mad at me and I know it was a pretty cool experience for him to have had the cast at the young age of nine. He used crutches at school and certainly got a lot of attention, plus TLC from the teachers. It was a thrill for everyone in our class to sign his cast. My mother even let me buy him a special toy as a sort of I'm sorry gift. So, when Halloween Day arrived, I was wondering how he was going to go trick-or-treating. With crutches, I guessed. It would be slow, but it could work. I even offered to carry his candy for him. Instead, his parents rented a wheelchair, and I had the honor of pushing him around the neighborhood. Oh, I offered right away to do that. This was fantastic, sure to be a lot of fun, and I was so excited. For costumes, we did the logical thing. I dressed as a doctor, and he was a patient. We used fake blood and really made him look like he'd been in a serious accident. For trick-or-treating, I would push him as far up to the houses as I could, as most of the houses in our neighborhood had porches or steps leading up to the front doors. Then I would trick-or-treat for both of us. Our candy take was a complete boomtown. You should never underestimate the sympathy advantage, and I would have happily pushed him around every year afterward. On Halloween, we generally hit every house in our street, on both sides of the road, and between the two intersections at both ends. We would also work all the houses down one dead-end street off of our own, as well as part of another street leading back between our two houses. That was easily about 50 houses, and I pushed them around to every one of them, for over three hours. We both had a great time and got lots of attention. I felt like we were the stars of Halloween for our little corner of the world. I had many very fun and happy Halloweens during my childhood, and most of those were with Mark, but this one stays strongest in my memory. I felt terrible about what had happened to Mark's leg, but I also felt like I had stepped up to do the right thing in being his wheelchair pusher on that special night. I wanted his parents to know that I would take good care of him, me, his best friend, just 10 years old. The contrast of that time to now is just wow, as I've never let any of my three kids trick-or-treat without adult supervision. It's funny, as it's often been said that the 1960s didn't really happen until the 1970s. Much of what you think about, like the psychedelic imagery, hippies, flower power, free love, hard rock, drug use, and etc., really started happening at the very end of the 60s and then well into the 70s. The 1970s is ironically often remembered as a raw, gritty, or gaudy time with no earlier time of purity. However, I'll tell you that as for my childhood, the early to mid-70s was the last dance of the innocents, often romanticized for the 1950s and earlier. My friends and other neighborhood kids almost always trick-or-treated alone. And on most weekends, Mark and I would be gone for hours without checking in. We had an autonomy unheard of these days. I've grown up, and I'm starting to get old. So it's a weird feeling to think of my 1970s as being so long ago. It was a great time to be a kid and to experience Halloween the old-fashioned way. Thanks, David. Next up is Weird Paul. Paul is going to share his earliest Halloween experiences and memories of an 80s Halloween costume masterpiece. The earliest memory of my life is also my first Halloween memory. It was 1973, and I was not quite three years old. My mother was getting me ready for my first ever trick-or-treat excursion. She had one of those old Ben Cooper plastic masks. Maybe she had even worn it as a little girl herself. 
It was the face of a horrible old witch, and she slipped it over my head with the elastic holding it in place. I was then held up to the mirror that was over the kitchen sink to behold the disguise. I still remember staring at the reflection of that ugly, terrifying visage where my own face should have been. I screamed violently, and I struggled to get away, not realizing that the thing that had scared me so bad was strapped onto my own head. Of course, eventually I grew to love dressing up for Halloween. Fast forward almost ten years. In 1982, I was eleven years old. For some reason, the pay cable channel HBO was coming in on our TV on Channel 5. The picture wasn't always great, but then again, we weren't paying for it. If I took one of the rabbit ears from the antenna that was on top of our television, and I slid it across the telephone jack that stuck out of the wood paneling of the wall in our den, the picture came in even clearer. The movie I watched the most during this period was The Cannonball Run, the cross-country racing comedy starring Burt Reynolds and Don DeLuise. HBO showed it several times a week, and I tried to never miss a showing. As Halloween neared, I decided that I would be going trick-or-treating as Captain Chaos, the superhero alter-ego of Dom DeLuise's character, Victor Prinsom. I already had a red windbreaker to use as a cape, and I got my mom to make me a black mask out of cloth and a red hood. Halloween night finally came, and I went out trick-or-treating with my sister and my cousins. There's still one doorbell in particular that I remember ringing. An old woman came out and asked us what we were dressed as. Not wanting to confuse the poor lady, and knowing she probably had never heard of the cannonball run, let alone Captain Chaos, I replied, I'm a superhero. That should do it, I thought. She'll be okay with that. To my great amusement, then, and still now, her response was, Oh, superhero, he's my favorite person. Thanks, Paul. Next up is Eric Lefebvre. Eric shares his costume memories, including a Halloween, as G.I. Joe's Snake Eyes. Halloween is hands down my favorite holiday, and it always has been. My appreciation doesn't stem so much from the collection and consumption of gluttonous amounts of candy, which is nothing to frown upon, of course, as much as it is the one day of the year that you can pretend to be someone else, and no one will look at you like you're crazy. So as you might guess, my Halloween story is about costumes. The first costume that I remember choosing for myself as a child was Batman. It was a Ben Cooper costume, which, as any child of the 70s and 80s knows, dominated the Halloween landscape at the time. Back then, it seemed that all we needed was a thin plastic mask and a plastic and fabric jumpsuit to transform ourselves into any number of licensed and unlicensed characters. Often the costume wasn't a replica of the character's actual outfit, and sometimes even looked nothing like the character in both design and color. I'm looking at you, yellow Spider-Man with blue webs. But somehow, when you put on that jumpsuit, tied the strings on the neck, and snapped that elastic band onto the back of your head, it didn't matter. You were that character. The fact that you didn't look exactly like the character also made little practical difference while trick-or-treating because you could always count on Ben Cooper to print the name of the character right on the front of the costume. This meant you could avoid the dreaded, So what are you supposed to be? from the neighbor you never talked to the rest of the year. But as I got a little older, I became less forgiving of the inaccuracies of the Ben Cooper costumes, and I also cared less if anyone knew what I was. The whole experience became more about being the character that I wanted to be. 
This involved much more effort than going to the store and choosing. It involved months of conceiving, plotting, planning, designing, and constructing the perfect costume. I also quickly discovered that I enjoyed the experience of making the costume as much as I enjoyed pretending to be the character. Enter 1984. I was immersed in the world of adventure Larry Hama was creating in the pages of Marvel's G.I. Joe comic book. It was a month before Halloween when I read part one of The Origin of Snake Eyes, the Joe team's ninja commando. In it, we got a glimpse of his secret ninja training in Japan. Ninjas were all the rage in popular culture back then. But when I saw Snake Eyes in his ninja training uniform in that comic book, I knew exactly who I was going to be for Halloween. Using the comic as reference, I made an illustrated diagram of my costume, making notes as to how I would accomplish each piece. Thankfully, my mother found some ninja pajamas that would serve as the base of the costume, but she and I would need to create the rest. I used a large, narrow shoebox for the backpack that I cut holes into so that my ninja weapons would fit inside. I reinforced all the openings, painted the whole thing with a thick black house paint I found in the basement, and attached a bandolier-style shoulder strap. I quickly learned that despite the extensive use of the bandolier by many characters in G.I. Joe, it was not reliable in the real world to support your backpack. So I added a supplemental strap for my opposite shoulder so my weapons would stay secure and in place on my back, easily accessible should I need to draw them quickly. My mother made the wrist and leg straps using a gray suede fabric with Velcro closures on the back so they were easy to take on and off, as well as the all-important ninja mask. A day before Halloween, my mother finally finished sewing the mask, so I decided to try everything on. The leg and wrist straps were snug, but they looked great and my backpack sat in just the right spot so I could draw both of my plastic katanas with ease. But then I tried on the mask and discovered my mother had sewn it lopsided. One of the pieces was larger than the other, so that it hung loosely on one side and was too short on the other. I almost died. To me, it was unwearable, but I couldn't very well be a ninja, let alone snake eyes without a mask. Even though my eyes were the only part of my face that was showing, I think my mother could tell that I was disappointed. Undeterred, she grabbed the mask from my face and sewed an additional line of stitches into the mask. It made it look like it was made up of more than just two pieces. That way, I could shift the mask over so that the longer part became shorter and the short part became longer. My costume was saved. The next day at school, I got major kudos from my friends as we enjoyed our Halloween party in the classroom. Yes, there were more than a few ninjas that year, but the consensus was that my Snake Eyes Ninja was the coolest. Later that night... I trick-or-treated through my neighborhood with my friends and received even more compliments about my costume. However, after our group disbanded to go our separate ways home, I was ambushed by two teenagers. I drew my plastic swords, but they really didn't do much good against kids twice my size with cans of shaving cream. Even so, I must have been more trouble than they had anticipated because they didn't get much on me and I was quickly able to wipe off the white foam after they ran away. I made it home soon afterward, candy still intact, but determined to find those teenagers and make them pay for their dishonor to my ninja costume. I never forgot their faces, and I did eventually get my revenge. But that is another Halloween story. Thanks, Eric. 
Last up is Vic Sage, who shares a tale of one of the worst horrors of the modern world, the ventriloquist dummy. In the three previous Retroist Halloween specials, I've talked about some memorable personal experiences I've had on the 31st of October. I've told of how I was delightfully frightened as a young boy by the local story of a ghostly bovine. I've also shared the Halloween night long ago when I went trick-or-treating with my cousins that kind of resulted in an unintended kidnapping. And I've related my experiences when working at the Razorback Theater and seeing what might possibly have been the ghost of a former manager walking the projection booth. Once again, I'm going to talk about fear and evil. An evil that came to reside in a plastic ventriloquist doll named Mortimer Snurd. At various times in my youth, when an adult would ask what I wanted to be when I grew up, I might have answered teacher, an astronaut, a knight, Batman, parapsychologist, or ventriloquist. The Christmas of 1981, I was firmly thinking my future profession would be as a ventriloquist, and that is why the main gif I circled in the Sears Wish Book was a reproduction of Edgar Bergen's Mortimer Snurd. Now bear in mind that I had decided to become a ventriloquist even after the TV commercials for 1978's Magic four years earlier, would send me running out of the room. I think it had to do with the Muppets, and Edgar Bergen's appearance on The Muppet Show and his cameo in The Muppet Movie. I really did give it my best shot. And after that Christmas, I did get Mortimer snurred. I had even brought it to entertain a class full of first graders, and I tried desperately to not move my mouth while I tried to throw my voice. The problem came in the summer of 1982, more specifically when the movie Poltergeist came to the drive-in in my neck of the woods. To say I was scared by the scene when Robbie Freeling comes under attack by that horrific clown doll, it's the epitome of an understatement. When I got home that night and went to bed, the sleepy-eyed Mortimer Snurd with his dopey grin on the corner of my bed didn't look quite so fun and benevolent anymore. Maybe a week went by, and the magic of becoming ventriloquist had died, and my unease being alone with Mortimer grew. So one night, before tucking myself into bed, I made sure to put Mortimer in the closet. That night, however, I was awoken by the sound of boxes within the closet falling in a jumble. I pulled my covers over my head, my mind forming a middle picture of Mortimer trying to find a way out of the closet to get to me, his plastic hands trying to reach the doorknob before knocking over the boxes by mistake. The next morning, in the reassuring light of day, I opened up the closet to find that Mortimer was now on the floor with toy boxes covering him up. This worried me. I knew, of course, that he hadn't really moved. That couldn't be possible. But what if I was wrong? That part of me that still found it unnerving to be completely in the dark kept nagging me. So I picked him up, and using the drawstring that controlled his mouth, I hung him from a coat hanger in the closet. Hanging there, he had a continuously opened mouth as if he had been shocked by my actions. Just to be safe, though, I moved my toy chest to block the closet door. Just in case. The absence of Mortimer didn't go unnoticed by my father, and he asked what had happened to the dummy a couple months later. I told my father the truth, that for some reason I had become easy and uneasy around it, possibly even scared of it. He said I should give it away, or just throw it away if I was that affected by it. Then, in a moment of clarity that would shock my father, his ten-year-old son put his Atari 2600 controller down and said, but then I won't know where he is. As I grew older, it became something of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind scenario with Mortimer. When I would have to get something from the closet, I could see Snurd in the corner of my vision, hanging from his hook, and I did my best to not think of what that cold plastic would feel like if his arms suddenly shot out to grab me, or how I might react if his mouth suddenly started to open and close with that hollow clopping sound. 
I'm not ashamed to admit that the toy chest stayed in front of the closet door. Just in case. I was 19 when the night before Halloween I had the absolute most horrifying nightmare of my entire life. I dreamed I was walking through my house. All the lights were off and a furious thunderstorm was taking place outside. The only illumination was when lightning would flash and cast a flashbulb image in front of me, throwing shadows of the window on the walls of the hallway that led to my bedroom. I remember feeling dread filling me up as I walked towards the slightly open bedroom door, where I could hear strange music, a type of calliope tune, and very faintly, a hollow clopping sound. Opening my bedroom door, I could see Mortimer dancing maniacally like a whirling dervish as a lightning blast struck the ground outside my home. The ventriloquist dummy moved about the room as it danced with nightmarish glee, and just as the illumination of the lightning strike began to fade, he stopped, as did the music, and slowly turned to look at me with menacing eyes. Join the dance, he said. I awoke, and the nightmare scared me so badly I actually had sweated through my bedding. That morning, after I got ready for work at the video store, I decided I had had just about enough of Mortimer. I moved the toy box out of the way and grabbed Snurd off his coat hook, and before heading off to work, I placed him on top of our trash cans to be picked up later that morning. To be honest, I felt pretty good the rest of the day. Halloween has always been my favorite holiday. I even told my friends about the nightmare and how I'd kind of felt like I had been keeping evil locked up throughout the years which caused one of my friends to remark I sounded like Dr. Loomis from Halloween. When I got home that night, my father was asleep, and I immediately headed to my bedroom to play some games. I opened my bedroom door and flipped on the lights, and screamed in fear. And friends, I do mean I shrieked. That woke my father up, and he came running down the hall. You see, in my bedroom, sitting on my chair, was Mortimer. I quickly told my father that I had thrown him away earlier in the day, that is when I learned that my father had come home early from work and saw it on the trash and had assumed that it had gotten thrown away by accident, and so he brought it back in and put it in the chair. So I picked Mortimer up and hung him back on his closet hook, pushed the toy chest in front of the closet door, just in case. Thanks, Vic, and thanks to everyone who contributed. I'd also like to take a moment to thank everyone who has listened to the show, and I hope you have enjoyed sharing in these contributors' memories. Halloween only comes once a year, so I hope you have a scary, happy, and safe Halloween. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. Thanks to Charlton Hero for his contribution to this show. You can find Charlton Hero on the Retroist. You can also find him at his website, The Superhero Satellite, which can be found at charltonhero.wordpress.com. You also might want to check him out on Twitter. You can find him at charlton underscore hero. Thanks to Justin for his great contribution. Justin can be found on the Retroist. He also has his own website. He is a former amateur boxer and has boxingforfree.com. That's boxing, the number four, free.com. And he posts a bunch of great videos, including unboxes and retro computing stuff at his YouTube channel at youtube.com slash justin76pa. All you Doug fans out there probably get your dose of Doug daily on the Retroist. You can also find Doug at his website, authordougmccoy.com. There you can find 
find all sorts of great information about Doug and his projects. Doug has several podcasts you can check out at mccoycast.wordpress.com. This time of year, I would suggest you check out his 80s anthology TV series episode-by-episode podcast. He has a great Halloween special that's posted there right now. Thanks to David Grealish. David is a computer historian and toy collector. You can find out a whole bunch more information about David at about.me slash David Grealish. That's G-R-E-E-L-I-S-H. Except no imitations. Thanks to Weird Paul for his contribution. You can find more information about Weird Paul at his website, weirdpaul.com. There you'll find information about Weird Paul's music and his new album, Still Going Strong. You also might want to check out his YouTube page. Paul has been a vlogger since 1984 and he has many videos to prove it. So if you have a moment, I suggest you take that moment and visit weirdpaul at youtube.com slash weirdpaulp. Thanks to Eric LeFaber for his great contribution. Eric creates many retro-inspired pieces of action figure art. You can see photos of them and learn how he makes them at his blog, insidiouscustoms.blogspot.com. You can also check him out on Facebook at facebook.com slash insidiouscustoms. Finally, thanks to Vic Stage for his contribution. You can find Vic on the Retroist every day. If you have feedback for Vic, you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a spooky Halloween. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of light or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old ventriloquist doll with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to speak through him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that ventriloquist doll's eyes was purely and simply evil. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.